Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Ashore Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the product science method, come and join us. You can learn more at ashoreproductscience.com workshops. Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to interview Joshua Seiden. Joshua has more than one book out. And so that I don't mess any of that up, I'm going to ask him to tell you. Uh, And he's got a new book out now that we're going to talk about today and a bit about uh, just what he's up to and how he's gotten there and what that's like. So um, Josh, can you uh, kick us off with uh, what are the books that you have? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Holly. It's great to be here. Um, So uh, I've written three books. Uh, My my first uh, book is uh, Lean UX, uh, which I co-wrote with uh, Jeff Gothelf. And uh, my second book also co-written with Jeff is called Sense and Respond. And um, my new book is called Outcomes uh, Over Output. Um, And that's just out um, uh, about a month and a half ago. Awesome. Um, I, I've uh, read several uh, of your books and I really found for me as somebody who's been in the, in the startup industry, I found Sense and Respond to be really helpful because it was helping me imagine how people from outside might see it and how we explain yeah. things to them. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it is absolutely my go-to whenever I'm talking to somebody who's either also trying to explain it to people in enterprises or in an enterprise wondering what's going on. Um, I, I always recommend Sense and Respond. And then, of course, um, you know, for those of us who actually are inside the startups um, and trying to deal with continuous discovery and UX, Lean UX is, is classic. Um, and so I'm super excited to talk with you. Um, and I know now you're working on or you've released uh, Managing Outcomes Over Output. So these things all tie together into uh, designing and making great products. And I'm curious, um, I always like to hear a little bit about the beginning of people's journeys. How uh-huh. did you How did you get here in the first place? Yeah. So, you know, I sort of stumbled into the technology world. I, I moved out. I, so I'm a native New Yorker, but I followed my girlfriend to California um, in the late 80s. Um, and... Um, I stumbled into the tech industry. I, I studied writing in school and I was an underemployed fiction writer with uh, great bartending skills. <laughs> and I, I got a job at a, a company called Kensington, which makes like mice and trackballs and computer accessories. And um, I did, uh, I was doing tech support there. And um, we were getting this sort of one category of phone call over and over and over again. Um, which was about people just basically not understanding this little piece of software that we shipped with our uh, trackballs. And um, I was sort of advocating for this change in the design of the software just to make the function clearer and simpler. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And um, apparently I made such a stink about it that the, the guy who was running the dev team and who had designed the user interface, he quit. 
And uh, my, our mutual boss sort of said, okay, Josh, that's your job now. And, uh, and so I sort of threw myself into it and, and I, I, um, I didn't even know what it was called, what, what I was doing, but I, I ended up managing a, um, uh, a team of very talented uh, software engineers and uh, uh, doing some user interface design and learning how to do usability testing. And I realized it, it was just sort of fascinating to me. And um, I ended up uh, being very lucky and landing a job um, with a guy named Alan Cooper, uh, who was, uh, I, I, I think, a sort of a really important figure in the history of software design. Uh, he's written a couple of books, uh, notably About Face. And he ran a company, founded and ran a company called Cooper. And so I went to work there and, and really learned how to do design in a consulting context. And then from there, the, the, a lot of my career has been about sort of figuring out first how to make design effective inside organizations and inside cross-functional teams, and then sort of more generally how to make teams more effective, uh, cross-functional teams that are um, building products and services, uh, digital and otherwise, how, how do you get those teams aligned around, you know, uh, shared vision, shared understanding, um, a kind of clarity on what the business needs are, business strategy is, product strategy, what user needs are, and, and, and how, do you, how do you line up and deliver against that? And so I guess that's the, the thumbnail version of the, you know, 25 plus years I, I've spent doing this stuff. Yeah, um, I have to say that is one of the most uh, unique ways of getting into it I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm thinking to myself, man, would I advocate for that? Could I tell somebody <laughs> just like point out the flaws and the reason for the customer feedback until someone says, fine, you do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh man. Um, but, uh, but it, I mean, yeah, you've had so many years and um, gone through so many, so many versions, um, I'm sure, of, uh, of learning and operating in this world. Um, so uh, tell me a bit about um, what was the thinking that led to, you know, writing um, your most recent book? Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm very interested in sort of how um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in practical methods that help people work on abstract problems. You know, how do you, like, you have to, you, you have to, as a designer or as a product person or as an engineer, right, you're, you're working with invisible materials and you're trying to, you know, make something new that's never existed before. It's all very abstract. Um, and so how do you do that? How do you, how do you get practical and sit down and put pen to paper or put fingers to keyboards and, and, and get this stuff done? Um, so I, I've always been interested in those kinds of thinking tools. Um, and I, you know, the whole thing was sort of catalyzed for me. Um, I had a client who was, um, I, I was doing like a planning workshop with them. And they had been given a um, they'd been given a kind of a strategic uh, objective for the year uh, to increase the net promoter score of the service that they operated. This was a a, a service team, um, 
and they called me in for a, a couple of days of planning and they, and they said, look, you know, we get it. We understand what net promoter score is and, and we understand why we want to do this, but how are we going to do this? Like we operate this service. We've been given this kind of vague mandate, like what do we need to do? And um, in that workshop, the, the sort of insight was like, what are, the, what are the specific behaviors that your customers are doing and that you're doing that increase satisfaction? And what are the specific behaviors that everybody in the system are doing that decrease satisfaction? How do we increase the good ones and, and suppress the bad ones, right? And that became a very, very concrete way of approaching what's a pretty abstract question, right? Increase net promoter score. And so the more we talked about it, the, the, more, um, the more I was convinced that this was the sort of, um, this was kind of like a magic key in some ways to doing the thing that we always, you always hear in the agile world, which is we want to be more outcome centric. It's not about the output. Mm -hmm. It's about the outcomes. And it's like, okay, right. Everybody gets that at the slogan level. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to seriously dispute that. Right. And so the real question becomes, how do you do that? Yes. Um, And so what, what that session led me to see was that there's really, really practical um, way to do that, which is by really focusing in a very concrete an almost reductive way on behavior. What are the people doing that's good and how do we get more of that? And what are people doing that's bad and how do we get them to do less of it? And if you just kind of relentlessly focus the question on that and and you call that, you know, you call those behaviors the outcomes that you're seeking, good things happen. And so that that little bit of insight, uh, I thought lent itself well to uh, the books that uh, Jeff and I have been publishing on uh, Suds and Respond Press, which are, you know, the, this is the, a, a publishing house that we started two years ago to publish short practical books on, uh, you know, product management, innovation, and digital transformation, you know, and just, it felt like there was a, a small book there. And, and so far, the, the response has been positive. So it feels yeah. like maybe that was right. Uh-huh. So one of the things that I that I love about what you just said is, uh, I guess there's more than one, but one is um, there's a lot of things that I think those of us who, you know, read the best practices or go, you know, listen to speakers um, agree on in principle. Uh, yeah. But then it's the it's it's everything that happens after that, how you make that tactical, how you actually accomplish it. You know, what are the nuances of how you put it to use in this organization with this set of people and this set of customers that um, is, uh, I guess, still so largely unwritten that um, people are just, you know, shooting into the dark. Or on the other hand, you know, it's not uncommon for me to talk to somebody who, um, you know, maybe after a drink or two tells me that they're pretty sure all of the things they read are lies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, no one's really working that way, right? Like, right. I, those must all be lies. And I'm like, well, I, yeah, I think there's, I think, you know, what's, what's interesting is that, so I, um, I had a friend, so I'm, I'm very interested, I work best in a collaborative context. And so, you know, when I'm designing, 
Like I'll, I sketch on paper, but I tend to prefer sketching on a whiteboard with other people in the room. That's, it's just my, my personality style. Um, but there are, there are designers and I have a friend who calls them kind of cave designers who work best when they're, you know, kind of in a cave, you know, like you put them in a cave, they go in there with whatever their tools are and they emerge with something fantastic, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that style. It's, it's hard on a collaborative team, but whatever. Right. But I think a lot of people operate that way. They, they operate in a kind of intuitive, like kind of um, like black box way when they're trying to get through abstract problems. And, um, and so for me, like, I think the, like, I'm, I'm super interested in, in making that less of an intuitive black box uh, kind of um, problem and more of a um, more methodical uh, and sort of like, help me, help me get there piece by piece. Um, it's not a replacement for, creative genius or creative spark, but it makes the creative, it gets you closer to the place where, you know, it gives you the Tinder and it gives you the Flint and you you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. You could actually make some light in that cave if you've got the Tinder and the Flint. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. But I do think there's a lot of people who write about methods who are like, um, you know, uh, here's the, here's the method you should use because this, this method is, easy to describe and I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So. Uh, well, I think in, in today's world too, we've got, a, I mean, with uh, the ease of publishing, um, you know, there's a lot of people who write because they can write, but um, haven't got a depth of different experiences that they're talking about. Um, yeah. And for me, a lot of the, like, my my work i'm i'm very interested in that sort of cycle of work where you know you you're actually in the field doing the work with teams and people and that that gives me the raw material to then sort of reflect on my experience and and write it up and i i don't think i could only do one you know that the the writing kind of reinforces what i've learned when i'm practicing and makes me a better practitioner and the practice gives me material to actually write about so yeah. Well, that's good to hear because that's that's my hope as well. I've uh, for myself, I've been doing more of the practicing and uh you know, this podcast is one of my first efforts at trying to do more of the content. Yeah. Um but that's my hope is that, you know, they'll both make each other better. So, uh the other thing another thing from what you said that that really stood out to me was the uh sir, you got a dog in your house? There's a dog. I have I have a neighbor with a loud dog. Ah, uh, yes. I'm nice. sorry about that. No, that's okay. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> I like it better when they come running up and you can like see them, you know, and yeah. uh, like, enjoy the the comfort of the pet. But um, barking dogs outside. It's, it's you know very New York. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, um. Okay. So, uh, one of the things that um that also sort of uh, stood out to me about what you were saying is about focusing on behavior. Um, Because I think there's a lot of levels that, that people who are trying to design and build products look at things and there's, you know, there's what is the opportunity in the market and then there's what, um, what problems do people have? Um, And, and we need to understand a lot of these things, but if we can't understand which things people actually act on and which things, you know, which ways they behave and, and why they behave, um, you know, then it's, 
it's kind of not, it's not as effective. Like I, I find myself having conversations with people about, well, okay, you could have people who both have different, um, who both have a bleeding head problem, but um, one of them might act on it and one of them might not. And, you know, we're trying to design a product for people who will actually do the thing. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm curious right. about the behaviors that you, you know, sort of how you landed on that um, and how that works in practice as a, as a tool for people to work through, um, you know, managing outcomes by looking for behaviors that they want to see and understanding what's going on there. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times, I mean, you know, a lot of times what happens is, um, is that people get given a, um, people get given a pretty high level mandate um, from leadership, right? The, the, the two patterns are either you get given a, a high level mandate, like increase net promoter score or increase retention or, you know, reduce churn or whatever that is, right? Or uh, product teams get handed a napkin, you know, and it's like, here, build this thing, right? And there's a, there's a place in the middle that is about, you know, you always hear like, um, you know, give the team a problem to solve, right? And that's, that's great. Totally agree with that. Um, but how do you frame that problem correctly so that, um, uh, so that it, it, it moves the needle? And um, I think uh, translating it from a kind of an abstract roll-up number, right? Like, like retention, into um, hours of video watched, right? I was just listening to an interview with uh, the the former head of product at um, at Netflix, right? And he talked about he talked about what a system that they have uh, where he, you know he he has uh, what he calls the big dog metric, which was retention, and then they have all these strategies to increase retention, personalization streaming video, da, da, da. and each one of those plays has what he calls a proxy metric, right? So if you're responsible for streaming, your proxy metric is the percent of users who stream X number of minutes per month, right? Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a problem statement that as a product person, you would love to get. Like, okay, your job is to increase the number of minutes streamed, right? <laughs> presumably there's a counterbalancing uh, metric, like, you know, without killing our customers for yes. or something <laughs> like that, you know? Uh, but I, I, but I think in that, in that space, it becomes um, that kind of sets the context for what we're always trying to do in a sort of an agile or sort of lean startup mindset, which is have a hypothesis about what will, what we can give to our customers that will create value for them and value for the business. And so, you know, what can I give my customer that's going to increase the minute streamed, right? Uh, that's an interesting problem to work on. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples that you're allowed to share? I know that's always tricky as a as a consultant, but um, you know, whether it's a, a real world example or um, or something that you can kind of, you know, uh, change the names so that they won't be uh, so the innocent or guilty may not be known. Right. Um, <laughs> well, um, so the so the the um I'm trying to think of one that I can talk about. Uh with with one client recently, what we did was we um 
we were looking at the sort of process funnel um, that they were they were operating a, a relatively high end uh, sort of business to business service that takes a long time to takes a long time to sell takes a long time to get approval takes a long time to fulfill um, and uh, so we were looking at that process funnel and sort of helping them kind of break that down into sort of what are the key actions that people have to take to make each step in that funnel succeed, right? What are the, what are the critical factors to get people successfully through that funnel? And some of those things had to do with getting through a certain phase in a certain amount of time, right? Like that this particular phase can't take longer than a week, right? Okay. So then how do you, how do you design that process so that it, you know, it doesn't take less than a week. So it, a lot of it has to do, so one approach is if you've got a process that's relatively understood, you map that process and, you ha- and then you understand, you, you map that process in terms of what people are doing at each stage in the process. And then you try to create those, uh, the good behaviors and eliminate the bad behaviors. And then you design your product or your service to make it possible to do those behaviors, right? So I think that's that's kind of my preferred approach. I mean, that's very much a, you know, my background is as a user experience designer. So it's very much um, like a user flow centric kind of way of thinking, right? Um, I think there are cases where it, it may not be the best way to go, but um, that's my starting point is what mm-hmm. are people doing and, you know, how do we get them to do more of the good stuff? Yeah. Um, no, that actually uh, reminded me happily of, um, you know, I think we've all, I'm sure, been through many versions of user journey mapping and user flows and, and mapping out processes. But I've always found it the most valuable when we were really trying to also identify and map the emotion with it and really say, okay, what are, what are the highs? What are the lows? How do we amplify that? And uh I think for the teams that that come to you with, well, I was told to move this metric, this KPI, and I don't even know where to start. It's it gives them a tangible beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think certainly for some kinds of uh, some kinds of work, that sort of the emotional dimension becomes really really important. Uh, I remember early on in my career, I was at Cooper, and one of the teams there was working on designing a um, uh, an early kind of um, kiosk guide, uh, like an in-museum digital kiosk for visitors, right? So you walk into the museum and there's a a touch screen and blah, 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 right? Um, So this is back when those things were not, uh, were were just starting to happen. And um, the the team had, uh, the team was sort of used to designing sort of very practical application software. Um, and they brought their first version back to the museum uh, team and the museum team said, well, look at it. It's fine. It does everything that uh, we asked you to make it do, but it's not fun. <laughs> like people are coming to a museum to experience the art and like, where's the feeling in this? And the team was like, oh yeah, right. 
Like there's this emotional <laughs> component. Like they've been approaching it really functionally and they've done mm-hmm. a really good job on that functional dimension. And then they had to go back and they had to kind of formulate an approach that was like, oh, okay. Like it's not just what people want to do. Uh, in some instances, it's as important or more important to think about how they want to feel as they're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And so then what are, how are you going to help people feel the things that uh, they want to feel and that you want them to feel as they're doing the things. The doing may be secondary. The doing may vanish altogether, right, for some kinds of products. So being able to map that uh, is, is uh, super interesting and valuable and, and tricky. Yeah, I really love that. And I also find, you know, as a um, someone who's often working with the people who are making the decisions about which time investments of their team are worth it, um, you know, that kind of thing, the the feel like it's missing the fun um, is something that I think people struggle with a lot. I mean, I definitely see, you know, people are like, well, when, you know, they'll, they'll ask me, well, when, when do I do the polish or, you know, should I do this now? Like, and a lot of times, you know, those are sort of the day-to-day coaching conversations where, where I'm like, yeah, no, you do it now. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not going to come back to it later. I've learned this the hard way, you know, and, um, uh, you have to figure out as one of your values, like what level of that you need. Yeah. Um, you know, what is the instance here? Are people just, you know, if it's something they've got to do, like it's their bank and, or, I mean, I guess banking is pretty competitive. So maybe more like it's their, their medical thing. Right. But if it's something where it's just like, there's no choice, then they'll fight through it. But otherwise, you know, they've got to feel pretty decent. Yeah. And if you, you know, I think there are a lot of categories where, you know, nobody has, nobody has played that card yet. And, uh, you know, somebody's going to come in and play that card and they're going to win that category. Right. Um, and so I, I, I think, uh, I think it's a, it's a big opportunity space for, um, you know, helping people feel, helping people feel, you know, uh, they, I feel smart organizing my money. I, you know, it doesn't have to be fun or frivolous. I feel smart. I feel competent. I feel whatever those things I feel. I mean, I think, I think to a certain degree, mint, uh, was a, was a winner, not just kind of functionally because it integrated all of this data, but I think there was a kind of a, an emotional component uh, for when you're managing your money of like, oh, my God, I finally got it all under control, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so I think, um, yeah, I think people who ignore that uh, dimension are missing a big opportunity. Yeah. Uh, do you ever work with clients who have, um, I mean, I guess with that example, but maybe more recently, um, have been ignoring that dimension and, uh, and you have to argue to them, um, that they need to invest more in it. Like, uh, I'm thinking about, um, I've worked with startup founders who, for example, like thought they didn't need to hire any kind of design for far too long. Um, (laughs) I'm curious if you come across that and how you argue for it. You know, I think most, most of the clients that I work with, they like, they know that it's important. Yeah. They, uh, they're probably the, they're probably not, um, honestly, I, I don't work with a lot of clients that need convincing, you know, it's like, if, if you need convincing, you're probably not going to hire me in the first place. You know? yep, yep. And so the clients are more, str- more, more struggling with, um, how do I do it? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm fighting so many fires. Right. 
Like mm -hmm. the whole house is burning. Don't ask me about the scented candle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that one. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not that dire. I'm not, I'm not trying to say my clients are all, I have a burning house, but you know, I mean, like it's just like, there's lots of, lots of stuff. Yes. Or they're all afraid that they, I'm just imagining now the cave and the, um, and the Tinder from earlier. So they're, they're all afraid that the designers can go into the cave and come out with the scent of candle. Yeah. The metaphors all seem to be about fire today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, yeah. So I guess, um, I'm, I'm actually curious. I think that made me think about this a little bit, but, um, so Cooper, you know, I'd heard of Cooper before. I've talked to several people who've been there. It, it, I agree. It sounds like a place and it sounds like, um, you know, Cooper himself for uh, sort of seminal in the, in the history of, of software development. Um, can you tell me a bit more about like, what are some of the things you got exposure to while you were there? And, um, you know, how, how did that influence you? So I'll tell you one of, one of the first things that attracted me. So this was I started working at Cooper and I got hired there in 96. Okay. And so that was really early in the sort of the, the development of the idea of design in software. Um, a lot of people felt that design had no place in software. Um, I, I heard executives from large companies uh, tell Alan, you know, uh, designers, sh designers have no place in the software development process, right? Um, it's, it's uh, this is an engineering discipline and, you know, your, your ideas are illegitimate, you know? <laughs> so, so a lot of what we were doing in those days was, I think, um, you know, kind of figuring out how to even do design in the context of, of software. And then there was a lot of sort of basic figuring out of, the grammar of graphical user interfaces, right? I mean, this was, you know, 90, 96, uh, that was just one year after the groundbreaking Windows 95, right? GUIs were pretty new to the world, uh, at least, you know, commercially popular GUIs and people didn't know how to program for them. And so, so there was a lot of sort of basic, a lot of the, the work in those years was kind of I call it grammar. Like, what does a dialogue box do? What should it do? What What should you even put in a dialogue box? And I know that that, you know, these years later sounds crazy, but like, people didn't know how to lay functions out on a screen. So that was that was kind of exciting. Um, the, I would say that the big thing that Alan taught me how to do was to understand. Um, the constraints that you were given on a problem and that a lot of times the sort of big wins come from seeing unspoken constraints and removing them. So I'll give you an example. When um, one of the first pieces I, I read by him before I worked for him, he'd written a piece about why calendar software uh, sucked. Um, there was a very popular app back then called Meeting Maker. And it was a group calendar software. It was before everybody had Outlook. Um, it was one of the early, early um, shared calendars you could install in a company. It's called Meeting Maker. And he said, you know, that the, the reason that that software sucks is that it assumes uh, it's, it's trying to make it easy to make meetings. 
right? And he said, you know, the thing is nobody wants to go to a meeting. And, and a really great scheduling software would make it easy to avoid meetings. I was like, wow, right? Like, I don't know whether I agree with that or not, but it was such a radical reframing of the problem, right? Like how different would it be if you were designing an app that made it easy to avoid meetings? It's a completely different mission, right? And so, you know, being able to look at the problem space and say, okay, we, we have all of these assumptions about the pro- problem space, right? Like we have to make it easy for people to schedule meetings and then being able to remove them or replace them with new constraints. Um, that, you know, I, I would say that was sort of the, uh, one of the biggest takeaways from that time for me. That's an incredible story. Um, I, I'm, I mean, like, I feel like my mind is still turning on that. Like, okay, interesting. <laughs> Has anybody solved that yet? Did anybody create the app that makes it easier to avoid meetings? No, no. I mean, I think, you know, if, whoever's out there listening, like, there's your opportunity. Make it easy for me to avoid more meetings, you know? Yeah. The world will thank you. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, oh, um, that's awesome. Uh, how long were you there? Uh, I spent four years there. Uh, it was sort of like uh, I joined, it was kind of pre-internet and then the internet kind of, um, it blew up and then it blew up, you know? <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, life had, my, my, my wife and I, I followed my girlfriend out there. I married her. Uh, we're both from New York. Uh, we decided we wanted to move back to New York City. Um, so in 2000, I moved back to New York. I, I parted ways from Cooper. Um, and, um, and then the, the, you know, the dot-com bubble burst at that point. Um, and uh, I think a, a, as happened to many people uh, at that moment, uh, 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 I became a consultant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and, um, but I liked it. My kids were little. And so I spent, uh, I spent about six years uh, kind of as an independent consultant then in New York City and building my network. And, and at some point, I'd sort of run out of things that I could learn uh, on my own in that context. And uh, I was lucky to, um, to find a job running a design team uh, at a, uh, on a company on Wall Street. We designed uh, trading products. And, and so I spent, uh, I spent the next kind of chunk of my career in-house um, working on uh, sort of very specialized uh, software for the finance industry. Oh, that's interesting to me um, because uh, when the first time that I started working as a product manager in a company that had, you know, um, over a hundred people instead of less than 10 um, was in ad tech. And I think at the time we, we used a lot of um, financial trading metaphors um, mm-hmm. for, you know, how, how this ecosystem was coming alive and being designed and, and what it was, how people were thinking of it, but it was really hard to get any insight into it because so much of the things that were happening in the finance uh, investment banking industry were, um, you know, not like you could just go to Google and be like, let me experience the sign up flow. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like, I know, you know, trading um, is, is complex and you have very demanding professional users. Um, what was that experience like? And how did you, I mean, how long did it take to ramp up and, and then be effective in that environment? Yeah. So I had, I, um, 
so that's, first of all, I mean, like, that's a kind of problem space that I really enjoy. Like, I really enjoy uh, complex, um, uh, complex problems, uh, solving complex problems for expert users. Uh, I, I find that a lot of fun. Um, and so, uh, the, the problem spaces there, uh, suited me, you know, uh, there was a fair amount of, uh, learning, but I think one of the things that happens as a design consultant is you get very good at, uh, if you're going to be successful and, and I think I was a pretty good design consultant, you get good at, uh, at being a quick study right? Asking questions and, um, and figuring out the fundamentals of any given industry pretty quickly. And, um, so a lot of the, a lot of the experience of getting started there was, uh, just using my skills as a, that I gained as a, as a design consultant to figure out what the users were doing. Um, there's a, I think there's a kind of a, there's this interesting thing on wall street, which is Everyone on Wall Street assumes that if if you um, if you've never worked on Wall Street, there's no you know you're, you're useless. But it doesn't take very long to get up to. I mean, it's a complex domain, and there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of them that I've never worked in that I don't really understand. But um, you know, you come up to speed pretty quickly, and then once you're in, people assume assume that you're in, right? You put. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember changing my LinkedIn profile. Uh, to say that I worked in financial services. And um, suddenly I was getting these calls that I'd never gotten before. I mean, I, I, you know, my resume was exactly the same uh, with the exception of sort of one job. But uh, Wall Street thinks that if you've worked on Wall Street, you're, you somehow got a, a gold star or something like that. I actually think that's amazingly uh, parallel to ad tech. Um, you know, it's the same I find thing. ad tech much more confusing than Wall Street, honestly. Yeah, I, I go talk. I mean, the, the the vocabulary of ad tech makes no sense to me. I go and when I speak with clients in ad tech, I'm just like, "What are you guys talking about?" You know? Oh my goodness! I mean, the okay, yeah, like definitely. Uh, so I have a similar, uh, I don't know, proclivity for complex problems, and so I was like, "Give it to me! I can't wait to learn something new. I'm too bored. Like, give you know, I want that." Um, but I I sort of learned later that I think that I. Um, I think that there were doubts around the person who decided to hire me because I hadn't been in ad tech and, uh, and I see all the time now and everybody I know who's, you know, who I met working there, um, we're just constantly like hearing from ad tech companies, looking for people who know ad tech. And then I try and tell a client, um, you know, whether it's ad tech or, or ed tech or um, gaming, like all sorts of things. People in all industries think that you have to be in their industry. I, <laughs> that's what I think anyways. Yeah. I see that all the time. Okay. Yeah. And they're out, they're all, they all think that they're, that they've got the special knowledge that no one can gain. And, uh, but you're right. Just apply your, your, um, you know, design research skills and learn. Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, that, that was, so that, I mean, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time the, the, the challenging thing I think in, um, in that context was that, um, we were doing, um, that, that particular company was doing institutional trading. So, so we traded on behalf of the biggest money managers in the world and, uh, there's just not that many of them. So the, the total population of, 
companies in the world that I think even could use our service was maybe a thousand. And we had a, we had good market share. So we had the sort of 750 customers that we wanted. And uh, in, in that context, each, each one of our accounts had a handful of users and each one of those users is, uh, you know, highly compensated, very busy, uh, um, you know, hard to access. So the, the, the dynamics of doing user-centered uh, design work in, in, in a context like that is challenging. It's, it's hard to get, um, you have to really adapt your approach to get in front of those users. We ended up doing a lot of sort of ride-alongs with uh, the sales team, you know, um, but even so, it's hard to get to people's desks. People don't want to show you their desks, you know. That's so fascinating. Um, yeah. why, why do you think they don't want to show you their desk? Well, because, you know, Wall Street, Wall Street uh, operates on, uh, on information, right? It, it operates on information asymmetry. So if, if I know more than you, I'm in a better position to make the trade than you are. That's my, that's my edge. And so there's a, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of guardedness about letting outsiders see the positions and, you know, what's going on. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, any other techniques that you developed in, in that context of just B2B with not that, uh, with a relatively small number of, of clients or companies on it that helped with user-centered design? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we um, so we used proxies to a certain degree, right? So it was much easier to sit next to our internal trading desk than to get out to our clients' trading desks, Right. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes proxies work and sometimes they don't. And you have, you have to kind of know uh, what the limits of that are, but being able to set up a team sitting next to your internal proxies is a, a really useful strategy. Um, and then just like the other part of that then becomes a, a social and relationship thing. You know, when I, when I first, when I first started working there, I was really, I was sort of shocked and appalled by the um, the way we would get access to our clients. Um, you know, the, the thing about trading particularly is that traders have to be at their desk from market open to market close. So they don't have meal breaks. So if you show up with nice food and you bring nice food to their desks, they're greatly appreciative. So we would show up with these crazy breakfast spreads or these insane, I mean, you know, uh, insane lunch spreads, we'd show up with, you know, lobster and steak for lunch, you know, I mean, that kind of thing, really. And at first, I was really appalled, but um, maybe I'm still appalled. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, by the same token, like, um, that's the, that's the, that opens the door to a kind of a social relationship and a, a relationship of where there's some trust there that helps you get past the guardedness and, you know, get to the people who are using your product. So I think that it's, it's easy, I think, to, um, to write that off as bad research practice, right? (laughs) You know, bribing (laughs) your users. With lobster Uh, and steak. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Sort of showing up with these giant sushi platters, you know? Um, But uh, yeah, right. I mean, every context is unique. Yeah, no, I think it's uh I think it's it's creative to figure out what works in the context you're in and 
it's um everything is meta it's uh you know we're experimenting on how to get to the users and how to get them to open to us we're experimenting on how to communicate with our coworkers we're experimenting on how to communicate with our team and then of course we're experimenting on the product itself right <laughs> so, right right yeah um that's really cool so um are there any sort of you know I guess for you, you know, you've, you've written a lot and you, so there's a lot of messages that, that come through in your work, but what is the thing that's kind of on your mind lately that you're, that you're trying to help people, you know, really understand um, and, and do a better job of applying? So I, I, I've been thinking a lot uh, lately about uh, product strategy and um, strategy in general, but, but a um, particular product strategy and, and how to help companies kind of crystallize um, crystallize a product strategy and then stick to it. I think a lot of us spend a lot of time when we're in-house, sort of in the day-to-day weeds and strategy seems complicated and inaccessible. And my, my emerging hunch is that uh, strategy is both simpler and more necessary than we think it is. And so I've been working on trying to relate sort of uh, strategy in, in the same way that sort of outcomes can be made simpler by thinking of them as like getting people to do more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff and being very specific about what that stuff is. That kind of makes the whole idea of outcomes really simple. Like, can we do the same thing for strategy? And we say like, okay, strategy is actually a really simple thing. And what's hard about it is, is having the discipline to stick to strategy. So in the next, uh, in the next couple of months, I'm, um, you know, follow me on Medium. If, if that sounds interesting to you, uh, I've got a couple of blog posts queued up about uh, using outcomes for strategy. And I, I'd love to hear people's thoughts on them. That sounds great. Um, I will definitely check that out. And uh, yeah, I'm passionate about strategy too. And I also, I, I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's simpler than people think. And a, a lot of, especially sort of rising product leaders think that they're not allowed to be strategic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just taking ownership of that and saying, oh, I can be, you know, um, and, and then learning how to, how to communicate it. Yeah, I think we think of strategy as like something the something people with the big paychecks do, right? It's not for me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, all of us can operate more strategically. And uh, it's just a question of figuring out that framework, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, well, this has been really interesting and fun. Um, how can people find you online if they want to follow you on Medium or, um, you know, Twitter, what are your, what are your places to go? Sure. So my, my website is uh, Um You can follow me on Twitter at jsiden. And uh, both those places, you'll find links to my other stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. Um, it was great to talk with you. And uh, I look forward to, to sharing this with our listeners and um, seeing what comes out in the next couple of months about product strategy. All right. Terrific. Uh, Holly, great to talk to you. And and thanks for having me on the podcast. Hey, Holly here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I wanted to share with you that at East Shore Product Science, we run lots of workshops and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method, a step-by-step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. 
We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com slash workshops. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.